Well, hello everyone. I have missed seeing you all and I hope you're well and I hope you had a wonderful Easter and a break from healthcare ethics. We only have a couple of more topics to cover and I'm going to go ahead and do MP3s on this and post them on Blackboard and then you all um, will have some time for a live stream on, on the 20th, um, which is our next Monday, April 20th. And you can ask questions about any of these and then we'll, we'll do the same for the week after. We may have covered some of these issues, but I just wanna refresh your memory related to them and um, make sure that all these principles are clear. We're on end of life um, issues and so, I wanted to kind of review some of the, um, certainly the healthcare directives that relate to these end of life issues and then some um, principles that are really important as we relate to these. So, so there are many moral issues in end of life decision-making. And remember the, the healthcare directives, the ethical and religious healthcare directives really help to remind us of the principles of our profession that are rooted in the gospel and that God assists us in this moral vision. And that's what the, the ethical and religious directives help us with as healthcare professionals, reminding us that Christ is our foundation. Um, he's given us all of the different types of law, right? So in natural law is that law upon which all the foundation of law is built in the sense that our reason and our faith um, can easily access the natural law. The natural law is accessible to our reason, our faith illuminates it and discovers it, and it's most beautifully articulated, this natural law, in the Ten Commandments. And so the church has always taken a great interest in ethical decision-making because it's focused on the human person, and the church is an expert in humanity. And so, you know, we've depended deeply on the wisdom of the church, certainly through um, sacred scripture, um, canon law, tradition, which is articulated beautifully in the catechism, and through the magisterial teaching of the church, okay? And so the church really helps us to respond to current problems, to safeguard faith and morals. You know, and there's continually, um, you know, new technology that comes out that we're not always sure about. You know, is this, is this, is this objectively evil or is it, you know, problematic as it relates to our, our moral life? And so we really want to um, be assisted so that we don't participate in actions that are contrary to the true dignity and vocation of the human person. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4 really addresses this issue that says, you know, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. The natural law will not be as accessible as it always has been. And that's because of sin, right? And so we want to make sure that we're, we're closely aligning ourselves with those ethical and religious directives, which reaffirm our moral standards, provide authoritative guidance from the church, and give us normative guidance guardrails really for making good moral cho choices in accord with the truth of Jesus Christ. And so in all of these discussions about um, ethical decision-making, 
The key principle, of course, is human dignity, that life is a gift of God. We're not the authors of life. We're stewards of our life and other people's lives. Um, we have an absolute negative obligation to never take an innocent life and also a positive obligation to preserve life, to care even when we can't cure, to care even when we can't cure, to accompany the one who suffers, assist in the care of the one who suffers, provide pain management, to try to eliminate the suffering without eliminating the one who suffers. I think it's also critically important to maintain the dignity of the human person to make sure um, that elements of informed consent must be met. And I know you've talked about this in your other classes, certainly if you're a nursing major. So what are some elephants, elements of informed consent which must be met for end of life decisions? Number one, information, right? There has to be an understandable explanation of the condition, purpose of the procedure that's going to be done, the risks and benefits of any proposed treatment. Um, alternatives to that including no treatment. Um, comprehension is the second element of informed consent. Is the language a language in which this person can actually understand? And, and then once we provide that information, have they understood what we have said to them? Because I think sometimes people will shake their head and say, yes, I understand, but can we really um, know that they understand. And oftentimes what I would do is just say, well, t tell me how you understand what I have just told you um, and make sure that that um, information that's been provided has been understood properly. And then the last element of informed consent, which is essential, is freedom. Um, that the patient understands the situation in this sense, that there's no coercion or undue influence to either go forward with the procedure or not do a procedure. And so it has to really be what they are choosing. And, um, and they, they're not fearing, feeling coerced in, in any aspect of that. Okay, so how do we make a decision for someone who may not be able to make that decision? Well, there's, there's a couple of um, concepts that we, we may use. One um, is the best interest standard, and the second is substituted judgment. Um, and so best interest standard, and the second is substituted judgment. There are two ways in which we can make a good decision, a proper decision for someone else. So the best interest standard, what is that? That reflects what a reasonable, reasonable person would decide as the best balance of benefits over burdens. It involves choosing between alternatives to achieve what is best for the patient. And this, this is used, the best interest standard is used when the family doesn't know what the patient wants. Maybe the person who's responsible for making decisions is related to the person, but they don't really know this person. So the best interest standard is often used in those circumstances. And, and when we use best interest standard, we're really looking at a duty to do good and avoid harm. The degree of pain and suffering should be assessed versus the potential for relief. The severity of the medical condition, the prognosis, the symptoms burden, the potential for cure, for restoration, 
for stabilization or control of, of symptoms. And then the goals. What are the current goals for this person? What's the future goals? And so um, these are some, some ways to assess best, best interest standard, um, but it's really kind of doing your best to, you know, make this decision for someone you're really not sure um, about what they would want to do. And that's always, that's always a very difficult place to be. Substituted judgment is a second way that we can make a decision for someone that is unable to do that for themselves. And substituted judgment is a different scenario because it's a scenario in which we know what that person would want. Um, we're close to that person. We're their spouse and we have a good relationship or we're their sibling and we have a good relationship. So this is when we make a decision that reflects the values and preferences of the incapacitated patient. What the patient would have chosen in a given situation. And this, of course, is always um, the best way, this substituted judgment. Um, even if it's not maybe what we would want for that person, we know this is what they would want. Now for children, I think it's important for end of life issues that we remember that the duty of beneficence, and beneficence of course is that moral principle um, that is about protecting or promoting the child's welfare, right? Duty of beneficence to do good, this takes precedence over autonomy in pediatric medicine. So beneficence always takes precedence over autonomy. And that is the duty to protect or promote the child's welfare, even over objection of the family. A child's best interest cannot be viewed in isolation from the family, um, but the child's best interest individually will win. An example of this is always the Jehovah Witness family that you know refuses blood transfusion for a child that will die without receiving that blood transfusion. The child's best interest will win in those um, circumstances. We recognize and respect um, the, the parents' um, beliefs in this sense, but we also recognize that a duty to life is, is even more important than that in this moment. I think it's also important just to remember those corresponding rights and duties of the patient and the provider. You know, when you have a good relationship with your patient, when you have a good relationship with your provider, um, that just indicates trust. You trust this person. You trust what they say. You trust that they're going to do what's best for you. Um, honesty is, is present. Respect is present. Um, and so it, it's really important um, to remember that as healthcare professionals, we have no separate or independent right where the patient is concerned. We can only take action. The doctor can only take action if the patient gives him permission or her permission. And so it's really important for us to remember that. Um, and so we need to take time to listen to our patients, um, inform them well, um, accompany them in their journey and recognizing that what we really want to do is enhance the life of that person and, um, you know, assist them in, in flourishing um, in their humanity. Okay, a little reminder about proportionate or ordinary care versus disproportionate or extraordinary means. So remember, proportionate or ordinary, that is morally obligatory to preserve life.
Autonomy is in play. Even what is in our eyes, ordinary, a person can say no to. And so we need to remember that, okay? So we're always making decisions in the best interest of the patient. Disproportionate means morally optional. And sometimes, um, you know, these are, these are difficult for us, um, disproportionate means or extraordinary means, because sometimes for, for the, the medical profession, professionals, the intent is often to avoid useless or excessively um, burdensome procedures. And so, you know, it's important for us to remember, you know, what we perceive as a burden may be perceived as a benefit to the family and the patient. So that's important for us to respect. Um, and so it's really in the light of the patient's circumstances um, and their preferences, okay? All right. Um, Nutrition and hydration, I know we spoke about this. It is an ordinary care in principle. Nutrition and hydration, it's ordinary care in principle. It can become morally optional if it can't be tolerated, if it's excessively burdensome to the patient. Is the food and water now causing harm? Do they have aspiration pneumonia, recurrent infection on the site, unable to assimilate nutrition and hydration? If they're really in, in that moment of imminent death. Texas on hydration and nutrition says it must be provided unless it would hasten a person's death, unless it's medically contraindicated for some of the things I just noted. Um, if that nutrition and hydration results in substantial um, irre irremediable physical pain, not outweighed by the benefits. So if it causes you know, pain, physical pain that can't be remediated or taken away, and it's not outweighed by the benefit of the treatment, then it can be stopped. Um, when hydration and nutrition is medically ineffective in prolonging life, okay? Um, so we have to be, um, be clear that, you know, normally, in normal circumstances, hydration and nutrition is really just ordinary care, and so, we have to keep these exceptions in mind, particularly in Texas, this is the law. Um, food and water is not a medical treatment, but a natural means of preserving life. And so if it can be tolerated, it really um, should be allowed for. I think I also mentioned persistent vegetative state previously, and this is um, that that state of consciousness in which there's been a severe acquired brain injury, a catastrophic event that disrupts the brain's arousal and awareness symptoms. And um, vegetate, vegetative state patients are awake, yet they fail to have an awareness of self or environment. If a person's been in a PVS state for three months or more, it is very rare that these persons will recover consciousness. Um, and so, um, so this is true, but these patients, we, we have to remember, they're not dying. They're, they're not dying in the sense that this disease is going to cause death. And so this is not um, an end of life situation in which, um, you know, in which we would stop feeding or we would stop hydrating. 
um, because again, um, the PVS itself is their current state of consciousness. It's not, um, it really isn't a disease in that sense of things. And so we don't make um, decisions about stopping ordinary care in those situations. Okay, so those are some principles as it relates to um, end of life. I believe that I covered euthanasia, but I thought I'd put it on um, tape for us so that you can review it because it will be part of our, um, our final exam. So euthanasia, what does the church have to say about euthanasia? Um, well, I think first of all, you know, it's really important for us to remember that, you know, dying itself is a part of life. You know, many fear the dying process Many are afraid of being kept alive past life's natural limits by burdensome medical technology. Patients fear intolerable pain and suffering. They fear losing control over bodily functions, lingering with severe dementia. But we need to remember that our society will be judged by how we respond to these fears, right? We need to be that caring community that devotes time to members facing the most vulnerable times of their lives. And when people are tempted to see their lives diminished in value or meaning, this is when they most need the love and assistance of others to assure them of their inherent worth. This is what we believe, right? This intrinsic worth of the human person. In terms of suicide, um, you know, there's, there's physician-assisted suicide um, or euthanasia, um, and there's suicide. Catholic teaching sees both as a grave offense against the human person. Suicide is a grave offense against love of self. Suicide is a grave offense against love of self. It breaks the bonds of love and solidarity with family friends, and God. Physician-assisted suicide or to assist in the suicide of another is to take part in an injustice which can never be excused, even if it's requested. Physician-assisted suicide is a corruption of the healing art. It violates the Hippocratic Oath that has guided physicians for millennia. I think we have to remember um, that people who are suffering um, with this suicidal ideation, they're oftentimes suffering from mental illness, such as clinical depression. And so there is really not a capacity to freely choose this choice because they're suffering from something that requires treatment. Suicidal desires may be fueled by setbacks in physical health, economic situation. But suicidal persons become increasingly incapable of appreciating options for dealing with these problems. Sometimes they suffer from a kind of tunnel vision which sees the only relief in death and they need to be freed from these suicidal thoughts through counseling, support, medication, and love. People who request death are vulnerable. They need care, they need protection. And to offer them lethal drugs is a victory not for freedom, but for the worst form of neglect. 
such an abandonment is responsible when society is increasingly aware of elder abuse and other forms of mistreatment of vulnerable persons. And so we have to um, keep in mind that persons who have this suicidal ideation are suffering more than just from, um, from that current thought. There's something that is beyond that that requires treatment. Secondarily, even apparently free choices may be unduly influenced by the biases and wishes of others. I think sometimes legal proposals define a class of people whose suicides may be facilitated rather than prevented. I think sometimes we say, you know, terminal illness is defined as persons with six months or less to live. But these predictions of short lives are notoriously unreliable. So even legal proposals that say, okay, well, you can, you can euthanize someone who, who has six months or less to live. Do we really know that? You know, do we, can we really um, garner that? I think there's also, um, with these legal definitions of terminal illness, a built-in ambiguity. Um, because I think sometimes people are dubbed as having six months or less to live only if they don't receive life supportive treatment. And so sometimes if we stop medications for people, yeah, they will die. I mean, if I stopped an, a cardiac, you know, antiarrhythmic drug for a patient, they would probably die in, you know, shorter time than what they normally would. And so again, there's, there's ambiguity sometimes in these legal definitions, particularly if someone isn't receiving life supportive treatment. Persons with chronic illness, disabilities could live a long time if they receive basic care that could be swept up in such a definition. And so we never want to rescind legal protection for one group of persons. Um, when we do that, we communicate a message that there are some lives that are unworthy of life. And this definition puts a premium on things like productivity and autonomy. These persons may not want to die, but they're tempted to regard their lives as less as meaningful, as if they have a duty to die. And so an expectation is sometimes created that certain people will be served by being helped to choose death. And they're given this right to die, but they're not given true rights for health care, housing opportunities, work, mobility, the things that would really enhance their humanity. Assisted suicide is also a problem because as citizens of the United States, we hold life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as fundamental rights. They're inalienable, and there is no accidents that life is named first. It's the most basic, right? And as Christians, we go further, right? Life is our first gift from an infinitely loving creator. And by assuming and sharing our human nature, the Son of God has revealed more fully the sacred character of each human life. Therefore, one cannot uphold human freedom and dignity by devaluing life. A choice to take one's life is a supreme contradiction of freedom, a choice to eliminate all choices. A society that devalues some people's lives by hastening and facilitating their deaths will ultimately lose respect for other rights, other freedoms.
Physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia is a false compassion. The idea that assisting suicide somehow shows compassion and eliminates suffering is equally misguided. Suicide eliminates the person, not the suffering, and results in suffering for those left behind. It shows vulnerable people that death is somehow an escape. True compassion is to suffer alongside, to suffer with. Taking the life of some in the name of compassion invites a slippery slope toward the ending the lives of people with non-terminal conditions. It risks adding pain to the suffering persons. Their worst suffering is often not physical pain, but feelings of isolation and hopelessness. The better way is the way of love and mercy. To surround patients with love, support, compassionate, providing the care they need to ease their physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering. This does not mean needlessly prolonging life by medical procedures which are ineffective or unduly burdensome, but it means providing effective palliative care that allows patients to vote, devote their attention to the unfinished business of their lives, to arrive at a sense of peace with God, with loved ones, and with themselves. Suffering for the Christian is not meaningless. Suffering accepted in love can bring us closer to the mystery of Christ's sacrifice for the salvation of others. Amen.